Okay. Uh, so like Carly said, my name is Brant Benetti. I'm the pastor of our East Nashville uh, congregation for Midtown, which is why I am wearing, whoo, who wooed for East Nashville, right? Yes, you guys should be coming to church with us on Sundays. So no, I'm just teasing, but seriously, but it's okay. Never mind. Um, that's why East Nashville, that's why I'm wearing this black sweater and fake glasses. So no, they're, they actually have a prescription. It's fine. Uh, Randy this morning is, he was struck down by COVID. He is, oh yes, sad. Uh, he's feeling okay though. He has a cold mostly is what, it, is what he said it feels like. So you can be praying for him. Uh, but it's one of the things that I love really about being part of this movement called Midtown. I don't know if you know this, you may be new here. We are a family of churches. Uh, and this congregation used to meet downtown at Rocket Town. I was there as a college student however many years ago that was. And I was there when this congregation planted the congregation in East Nashville. Because what we believe here as a church is that uh, when you have one person pushed to the top of a pyramid, that that can be a dangerous thing. And that what we're about is creating a movement of gospel transformation around the city that's not focused on one person or pastor or personality, but that's spread out in these life-giving congregations all throughout our city. And the fact that I get to minister and live with my family in East Nashville is because so many of you have believed in and been a part of that vision for a long time. So really, really thankful for you and fun. It's fun for me to be back here in this congregation where I spent uh, so much time myself. So thank you for having me this morning. Uh, our January uh, series is all about vision. And it is about the vision for each of our individual congregations. So that's a fun plot twist to be preaching uh, what I preached this morning to East Nashville here at Granny White. But again, it's one of the things that I love about being part of Midtown is that while this vision has individual expressions at each of our congregations, it's also the same vision for all of our congregations. So what you get this morning will be what we got in East Nashville, and I'm prayerful and hopeful that it will be exactly what the Lord uh, has for you this morning as well. So uh, when we talk about this idea of vision, I think what... What I've been struck by is, well, I'm watching this show um, on Netflix. Do any of you have Netflix? <laughs> yes, okay, good. So I'm not alone in that. It's, it's uh, the Formula One documentary. Anybody, to get, get any hands for anybody who's watched that? Okay, a few of you. Uh, or as they say, apparently in Europe, f Formula One, I guess. Uh, it's when people, people race these very fast cars. They go hundreds of miles per hour around these uh, really crazy tracks. And there are, that's, that's what for a moment, these really expensive cars, like multi-million dollar cars, they crash all the time. It is a fascinating documentary. And there are, so this sport is like a worldwide sport. People watch it from all around the globe, all these countries across the world. And there are 10 Formula One teams. That's it. And each of those teams has two drivers. And you'll hear the drivers in the documentary talk about this. They'll say, I am competing for one of 20 spots in my sport. So for, for across the globe, there are 20 Formula One athletes. That's it. And we just started the second season of, of this uh, docuseries last night. So of course, we had to watch like the first 10 minutes, you know, after we finished season one. And it's all of these like interviews of all of these drivers saying, my drive is, what my goal for this season is to be the champion, to be on the podium, to, to, to win this year. 
And what you see as the documentary unfolds is how this vision of being number one in Formula One has occupied these men's lives since they were children. They've got like videos, home videos of them in little go-karts going around tracks. It has been their whole life for their entire life. The vision of, them, of, of themselves being up on this podium has consumed them. So when we talk about vision, uh, that's what we're talking about. What is it that consumes your, your life? What is it that occupies not only your, your thought life, but your heart? Like, what have you given your heart to? And guys, that is, that's such an important distinction because in our world of, all, for, for most of us, we work at companies or places that have vision statements, right? And someone gets out at the beginning of the year, la, 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 these are our goals for the year. And the whole idea is we're going to get you pepped up and motivated to buy into your company's vision, uh, for your company's vision, which in a lot of ways, not to be cynical, but to be a little bit cynical, is just a way of getting you to buy into increasing their bottom line, right? That's kind of how we're packaged and sold vision all the time. Like, you could think that what we're trying to do here is get you to buy season tickets to Midtown Granny White. Okay, that is not what we're doing this morning. God help us if that is what we are doing this morning because that is not something that is worth giving your life away to. That what we're talking about this morning is what does God's word have to tell us that would so consume our hearts and our minds that we would be give, willing to give our lives to it? That that is what we're talking about this morning. That's what we're trusting. That we're trusting that God has something to say to us that has that kind of implications, that, that weighty of ramifications for our lives this morning. And the passage that we're gonna be in is Romans 1, 16. It's just one verse. After reading, after weeks and weeks of reading these crazy long passages, just one verse. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Let's read it again. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And what we're gonna talk about this morning is what is the gospel? Clearly that's a really important word in this passage, right? It's the power of God. It's the only thing, the only object in scripture that's called the power of God. Well, what is it? We're gonna talk about that, the content of the gospel. We're gonna talk about the power of the gospel and then what it means for us to be unashamed of the gospel. So if you're a note taker, spoiler alert, those are the three points, okay? <laughs> Content of the gospel, power of the gospel, unashamed of the gospel. Pray with me. Father, we are thankful for your word. Lord, that you would desire to capture us with a vision of who you are uh, and what you've done for us, Lord, that uh, something that's worth giving our lives to. And pray that you would stir our minds and our hearts toward that this morning. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's, let's get into it, right? What is the content of the gospel? And, and I want to 
just kind of warn you as we start this section, uh, you may not hear anything new when we talk about the content of the gospel, okay? That's okay. That, that the point of what we're doing here this morning is not feeding you more information as if you getting more information is the thing that's gonna change your life. What we're talking about is having our hearts and our minds captured by the truth of the content of the gospel. That's what we're praying for and hoping for this morning. And when we talk about the gospel, does anyone know what the word gospel means? Some of you have been around church for a really long time. What? One more time. It's good news, right? That's what gospel means. It means good news. But if you look at it, even in a more kind of technical sense, in the way that it was used kind of more broadly in, uh, in the Greek language that it comes from, this word evangelion means victory. It's news specifically of victory, right? So in, in the way that uh, battles and wars were fought in the ancient world, they were big deals, right? That if, if your nation, if your people group, if your city won a victory, it could have massive implications for your city. And if you lost a battle, it could also have massive implications for you. And so receiving news back home from what had happened with your army abroad was really important. In fact, our word for this is just a fun historical rabbit trail. Just go with me for a minute, okay? The word for marathon comes from, from this idea of a battle and a victory of a battle being announced. There's this in 490 BC, okay? The Persians were invading Greece, specifically uh, the cities of Athens and Sparta. So if you've watched the movie 300, you have some historical context for what I'm talking about, okay? Uh, and it was this huge battle. It was kind of like Star Wars. It's, it's the evil galactic empire, that's Persia, versus these tiny Greek city-states, you know, that are the rebels, this much smaller army. And at the Battle of Marathon, the, the Greeks defeated the Persians, and the Persians left in their ships and went back to Persia, and the Greeks got to live in freedom happily ever after, okay? So then there's this runner, Pheidippides, who takes this good news and sprints back to Athens, and it's about a 25-mile run. And he gets there, and he shouts, victory! And then he falls over dead, is how the story, so obviously he did not do the marathon training like he should have. But that's, that's where we get this word for marathon, is he comes back and he's telling his countrymen, you're safe, we've won, it's gonna be okay, victory. And that's the word that Paul chooses very intentionally, that the gospel writers choose very intentionally, that Jesus himself chooses very intentionally to talk about his work in the world, that his kingdom coming, that what he has done for us, Paul says, the, the news of Jesus for us, it's good news, it's news of victory, and it's news of Jesus' victory over death. That the good news that Paul is talking about here is that our Lord, Jesus Christ, has defeated death that the victory over death has been won. And, and that victory has implications for the entire universe, for all of creation. Okay, this is what Paul says in Romans 8. This is Romans 8, 19 through 22. Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Okay, that all of creation has been subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. That all of creation 
everything in the universe, Paul is saying, is chained to corruption, to decay. If you were a physicist, you might call it entropy. That everything in creation tends toward unwinding, toward chaos, to being undone. You might say that all of the universe could be diagnosed with what people in the medical field would call a failure to thrive. That creation is failing to live up to what God, the purpose for which God created it. Do you believe that's true? Like when you look around you, have you experienced that? That creation is chaotic? That it seems to be at war with itself? That we look around and say, this is not how it's supposed to be. And what Paul is saying is, that's true, you're right. You realize, apart from the gospel, we have no ground of saying that the world isn't the way it's supposed to be. We have no ground for calling a natural disaster a disaster. It's just the way the world is. But in the gospel, we can say with Paul, yes, this is not the way the world was supposed to be. And what Paul says, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has said, I have defeated that chaos. And that his, his resurrection declares he has, he has won the victory over death and decay. And that all of the universe one day is going to be set free from the bondage that it's in now. Everything in the universe will be all of creation. Because the victory for it has already been won. You've got to wonder, what is that going to be like, right? I don't know. That actually is a place where, where Scripture calls us even to use our imaginations in entering into this world of thinking, what will it be like when the world, when the universe, when all of creation is set free from decay and from futility, when it reaches the fullness of what it's supposed to be? And all kind of, Scripture is full of metaphors for it. Like Isaiah says, it'll be, it, the lion will lie down with the lamb. That's the kind of peace that will be in the universe, in all of creation that little children will play over, will play with poison, will play with cobras. That's the kind of peace that will be, that bears will eat grass. Right, the psalmist says, it'll be like the trees are clapping their hands, like the rocks themselves are crying out. That's what it will be like. What will it be like? It'll be like a wedding supper of the land. It'll be like a wedding supper. It'll be like the reception of a wedding where we're, where we're feasting together. And that freedom that the entire universe is gonna experience, what Paul says is that that has now been birthed in you. That if you are in Christ, what is true about you is you have been set free from your bondage to sin and to decay and to death. And this thing that all of creation is groaning for and hoping for, that the first fruits of that, the beginnings of that, the seeds of that have been sprouted in you and in your heart. That's true about you. And our hope is that even though we don't get to experience that victory completely right now, that we've heard the person who has come and shouted victory to us, and so we look forward to the day that the new heavens and the new earth come together. And that we get to live in fully resurrected bodies, like our Lord's resurrected body, with Him in the new heavens and the new earth. Is that good news? Okay.
Let's try that again, huh? Is that good news? Yes, right? Can, I, can we get, I like the woo. Yes, it is woo. Yes, it is good news, friends. And that good news is the power of God. The good news of the gospel is the power of God. The good news of the gospel, it is not good advice for how you can get your life to be a little bit better. It, it will change your life, okay? But it is not good advice for you to fix your life. It's not even an extra little motivational kick in the pants for you, right? That's sometimes how we treat it. Well, you know, God did this for you, so you better like get it for God. That is not the gospel because that's still all about your power. No, the gospel is the power of God. It is the gospel itself, this message. It's dynamic. It's powerful. God uses it to work and to change us. I think of the difference between, like a, it's like the difference between a screwdriver and a drill, right? Uh, if, if everything that needed to get done in my house, uh, if, if I only had a screwdriver to get that work done, there would be a lot of work undone, right? There would be a lot of things that would never have been hung. Because a screwdriver depends on my ability to have enough strength to, to make the work happen. That is not the gospel. The gospel comes with its own power, its own built-in power. It's the drill that God uses to accomplish the work in our lives. Out of his free and abounding and overflowing love for his people. And it's the power of God for salvation. Now, when Scripture talks about salvation, it talks about salvation in three different ways. The New Testament talks about the salvation that has been accomplished for us. It says, you have been saved, okay? The New Testament also says, you are being saved. You're like, well, I thought I was saved. And then it will also say, you will be saved. What's going on? Well, it's talking about salvation in three different ways. So we've got our salvation that has been accomplished for us, okay? The theological term for that would be our justification. Then we've got this, the salvation for us that is ongoing. The theological term for that would be sanctification, okay? And then we've got our salvation that we look forward to in the future when we stand before God on judgment day that we will be declared righteous in his sight. Our hope for that, our confidence in that is our, is our glorification, that living in the new heavens and the new earth. The gospel is the power of God for all of those things. That it's the power of God that has accomplished our salvation, that has justified us before God, that allows us to say that in front of Jesus Christ, even now, that God looks at us and he is pleased. And that's true. And that's not true. Friend, this is the best news of the gospel. That is true not because of anything that you have done. You have added nothing to it. It has been done. It has been accomplished for you which means there is nothing you can do to get rid of it, to undo it. That you have been made right with God. And what that invites us into is into rest. Not the kind of rest that means there's no activity in our lives, but the rest that comes from knowing we have nothing to prove that you are already as loved by God as you will ever be. That there is nothing that you can do to get God to love you more. 
There is nothing you, to, you can do to get more blessing from God. He has already given you everything you need for life and godliness, and that's been done and accomplished by Him. It means that there is nothing you can do, think about this, to get closer to God. We talk about that a lot, right? A lot of you probably have New Year's resolutions. I'm going to read my Bible every day. Great. You say, I want to do it because I want to get closer to God. Maybe because you want to feel closer to God or you want to be more aware of God's presence in your life. But you need to know there is nothing you can do to get closer to him because he is already as close to you as he will ever be because he accomplished that work for you. It's his power that's done it. And it's his power that sanctifies us, that makes us more like Jesus day in and day out. Right? We kind of think about Jesus sometimes like he's, um, like he's a football coach, you know? Like he gets out all of us in the room before the game, you know? I never played football, but this is kind of how I've seen it on TV. <laughs> I played for a week, actually, but then no more after that. So he gets all of us in a room, and, uh, and he says, hey, guys, you know, I've done a really good job coaching you, right? Uh, we've, we've, we've drilled really hard. We've worked really hard. I've worked out really hard. I've given everything you need. So now I want you to get out there and show me what you've got, right? Prove that I've really trained you well. Right, so, so get out there, and he just kind of like hits us all as, we, as we're running out the door. And then we kind of get on the field, and we, do, and we come back to church on Sundays, and we're like, wow, you know, I didn't do as much as I should have done. You know, I, I dropped the pass, but I got that block. I guess those things go together, right? <laughs> and then, oh, okay, we get, read our pep talk, and we get sit back out as we go out the door of church. Right, hey, get out there and try again harder next week. Friends, that is not the gospel, because that is still all about your power and my power. And this gospel is about the power of God and what he has done for us. Would that change how you live your day-to-day life? That promise? Yes, it's changed my life. And it's also the power of God that promises us, that has accomplished for us our future salvation. And that, that frees us to hope and to work toward the new heavens and the new earth without being crushed by disappointment when it doesn't happen. Okay, so the promise that it's God's power that's at work to bring the new heavens and the new earth allows us to work toward that and that vision of God's kingdom coming without being crushed when it doesn't happen. Because our world tends toward two extremes. One is that we believe that in our power, we're going to be able to make this world, to restore it to, its, uh, to what it was created for. We can believe and buy in. We were being sold the, the, the lie all the time that if we just tried a little bit harder, if we all just believed the right things, if we all just got our acts together, if we all just voted for the right person, that then the kingdom of God would finally come. And they may not call it the kingdom of God. You can call it whatever you want. But that hope of utopia in our human effort, right, is often what we're called to buy into. And the place that that always leads us is to the opposite extreme, which is to despair, because the promises of man never actually deliver. And what happens is we get angry and disillusioned and we think it's not even worth it anymore. And the power of God for salvation, for our future salvation, encourages us and reminds us, hey, when you work toward the kingdom of God, coming in this world, you're doing it with the power of God, which means you're doing things that are worth it and that will last. 
And that when we are confronted by the darkness and the chaos and the futility of this world, we can acknowledge them for what they are and know that one day the power of our Jesus is gonna put all those things to rest. That he's already declared victory over those things. And what that means here, what that means for this congregation, what it means for us as Midtown, is that you will, spoiler alert, okay? You're gonna hear the same sermon here every Sunday. Have you, have you figured that out yet? And what you are gonna hear every Sunday just gets me because this changed my life. What you're gonna hear every Sunday is the gospel of what Jesus has done for you, what the power of God has done for your salvation and is doing and will do for your salvation. You will hear that here every Sunday, week in and week out. Because that's the vision that's captured us. It's not the vision of what we have done, but the vision of what Jesus has done for us. It's the vision of our Jesus himself, of our risen and resurrected Lord. It's part of this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who's who has bent all of his energy and love toward, toward bringing you to himself. That God delights in using his power to do that. That is the vision here. And all of the specific and nuanced ways that you're gonna hear Randy talk about that, which are awesome and very exciting, are all just a part of that overall vision. So that's the good news, right? And yet, I gotta ask, do you ever feel ashamed of that? Do you ever wanna hide it? Or let's just say, do you ever find yourself not wanting to be outed as a Christian in front of other people? Like, if they asked me, I wouldn't lie about it. I wouldn't deny it, right? Are you a Christian? No, and I'm not gonna say that. But if, but if, but. Does anybody connect to that at all? I think um, you're in good company because the fact that Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel means that he, he feels the temptation or the pull toward it. And he addresses it with us head on. And that's a pretty horrible way to live, isn't it? Feeling ashamed of this thing that we also believe at the same time is amazing and revolutionary news. That we're fighting to have the gospel be this vision that, that overtakes our lives and yet there are times we wanna hide it from other people. Ah. Oh, there's more freedom for us than that. And what is so easy to do is to shame ourselves for feeling the shame. Have you ever done that? Come to church and you're like, well, you guys, you're ashamed of the gospel? Well, I'm ashamed of you for being ashamed of the gospel, so get it together and don't do that, right? Come on. And that will work for a while. It's actually very powerful. But it will always run out of steam. And it will leave you angry 
and it will leave you bitter, and it will leave you joyless and self-righteous. So we've got to ask, well, there's got to be a better way, right? There is. So I want you to think with me for a second about Bitcoin, okay? <laughs> We're going to get there, I promise. Uh, do you guys know what Bitcoin is? I, I only kind of do. I think that's how most people feel about it. Anyway, it's this digital currency that if you have a Bitcoin, it's worth, what is it worth right now? Like $50,000 a coin? It, it, it fluctuates wildly, so it could be $20,000 right now. Who knows? But worth a lot of money. I just want you to imagine with me for a second, okay, that you got in early on the Bitcoin mining, and let's say that you mined, bought $1,000 worth of Bitcoin when it was worth $5 a coin. I don't know when that was, but there was a time when that was true. Do you know how much money you would have now? I don't know exactly, but it would be a lot of money, right? It would be millions of dollars, $8 million, something like it would be a lot of money. That's the point. If you, if you had made that kind of early investment in Bitcoin, would you be ashamed of it ever, or would you wear it proudly? Would you wear it proudly? Yeah, right? Maybe some of you have friends. Maybe it's you who have like bought it at least at some point, and I'm sure all of your friends know about it, right? Um, that is not what we're talking about. Because the whole, the whole premise behind this idea of Bitcoin is that uh, it's become so valuable because people have decided to believe that it's valuable. It has no intrinsic value in and of itself. The only reason it's worth so much is because people are excited about it and want to buy it. So the only reason it has value is because other people say it has value which is the way our whole monetary system works, which we can't even get into because that is mind-bending to me. But what it means is that, friends, we don't even have a category for intrinsically valuable things because everything in our lives can be bought and sold. Everything is a commodity to us. But what we're talking about here with the gospel is something totally different than that. We're talking about something that has intrinsic value in and of itself, right? So. This is not just for coffee, this is coffee, this is for illustration this morning. This is a mug that I brought from home. I think it's cool, okay? So I want, I want you to imagine with me for a minute that you come over to my house, you're like, oh, I like that mug. Uh, I'm gonna offer you $5 for it. I'm like, it was probably worth more than that when someone bought it in the 70s. No, I'm, I'll keep my mug, thank you. You say, well, okay, I'll offer you the $100 for it. Hmm. Like, no, I would still like to keep my mug. You're going to start to wonder, hmm, like, I wonder why that mug means so much to you, right? What if you offer me $1,000 for my mug? And I'm like, well, actually, no. I'm still going to hold on to it. And you're going to wonder, who made the mug, right? <laughs> like, did Picasso make mugs I didn't know about? Like, what is, what is with the mug? What if you offer me a million dollars for my mug and I still turn it down? What's wrong with him? It would mean that there's something I find intrinsically valuable about the mug. It would also mean that I have a lot of money because it would mean that a million dollars isn't, 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 isn't anything to me, right? <laughs> that's the gospel. This thing that's intrinsically valuable in and of itself that has value regardless of whether or not other people recognize the value of it. No, to us, it still has value. 
But Jesus talks about this. He tells a parable about it in Matthew 13. He talks about this pearl. He says there's this beautiful pearl, and a merchant sees the pearl, and he sells everything that he has to buy the pearl. How silly is that, right? You can't eat a pearl. You sell everything you have to buy this thing. You can't live in a pearl. You can't drive a pearl, right? That's the point of the parable. Is that he has found this pearl so valuable, so beautiful, that he would give everything to to have it. Because in his eyes, it has value in and of itself. And and that is the the call that, that we would, Paul would have us, move towards that we would come to see the gospel is that valuable because that is how valuable God sees us. That he would do what lots of people would consider very foolish, right? That he would leave heaven, that he would give away everything he has, including his very life, to buy you because he finds you valuable. That when we treasure the gospel, when we treasure Christ, we find that we're only treasuring someone who has treasured us far more than we could ever treasure him. And this is so helpful then as we go about living our Christian life because we can spend a lot of time um, being ashamed by other Christians, can't we? Have you ever had that experience? When I ask, are you ever ashamed of the gospel? What's probably true is that most of you are ashamed of how you've seen other people live out the gospel or not live out the gospel or, or claim and then abuse the gospel in all kinds of different ways. And friends, I'm with you, okay? I'm not gonna stand up here and apologize for any of those things because I can list plenty of them myself. But what's, what we can do so easily is become so consumed by all the things that we're trying to not be right? Don't worry, I'm not that kind of Christian, right? Don't worry, I still drink sometimes. Don't worry, I also listen to cool music. Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. That we forget the thing that we actually value. And that what we often, what that way of thinking often betrays, and this is true for me, is that what I deeply value is the respect and affirmation of other people. And that on some level, that has become more important to me and more valuable to me than the fact that I'm treasured. And that, that desire to be respected, it is always going to disappoint. It's never going to give the life that it promises to give. And so the call here is that rather than being consumed by trying to prove something about what kind of Christian we are, what kind of image we're cultivating, that we would be a people who would be captured by the fact that we've been captured, right? And of course, then we're free to acknowledge, yes, there are all kinds of Christians who do all kinds, say all kinds of wacky things. Sure, I want to talk about Jesus. I want to talk about the fact that I have been treasured, that I have been captured. Can I talk to you about that, Jesus? And yes, it could stir up all kinds of opposition. It could stir up even ridicule from the people around you. That happens. Of course it does. Because what the gospel says is that before the the throne of God, we are all radically equal. What the gospel does is it sweeps away all of our pretensions all of our thoughts of being better than other people, of comparing ourselves to other people, of proving ourselves, of saying that because I belong to this group or because I believe this thing or because I've identified like this, that, I, that makes me better than other people. And the gospel says that's not true and that, that, that's hard to swallow. And the gospel says in that place, 
of being radically needy before God, that in all of our humility and ugliness and all of our sin, that that is the place that God has come and found us and loved us. And what that frees us to do is to love the people around us with that kind of love. Not a comparing kind of love, but a love that celebrates weakness. A love that's even willing to die to self to love other people well. And that's part of the vision for this congregation, isn't it? That's the kind of community that we want to be here in our neighborhoods, isn't it? The kind of community that unashamedly proclaims how much Jesus loves us, that proclaims the open message of that love to everyone in the way that we live and the way that we speak. That we, that we would see this room more full because of the ways that you guys are unashamedly living out the gospel in your lives, that there would be more churches like East Nashville that had been planted out of this room because of the ways that you are unashamedly living and breathing and, and exemplifying and speaking the beautiful reality that you are a people who have been treasured. That is the vision that has captured that's captured us as individual people and as a community here at Granny White and as a community in Midtown. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, the news of your gospel, Lord, it is news that is so good that it is hard for us to believe. In some ways, Lord, it feels like it's too good to be true. Lord, would you save us from that this morning? Lord, our hearts are so small. Lord, our willingness to admit how much we need to be loved and how much you've loved us. Lord, it's so small. Would you enlarge that for us this morning? Would you capture us by the fact that you've captured us? Lord, would you teach us to treasure you more because we are treasured? And Lord, as we worship you this morning, would you warm our hearts to that reality that we would leave this morning as a community that is unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen.